we hear the word time, it's kind of ominous in a way. If you watch a lot of movies or TV like I used to, you might have heard the ticking of a clock to add suspense or drama. And if we think about it, there's a reason why when we think or even hear of time, it kind of gives us a little bit of a fear because time defines us completely. Our birth certificate has not only the date we were born, but also has the time. And our death certificate, should the Lord tarry, will contain, again, the time and date of our passing into eternity. We wake up at a particular time, either by ourselves or with the aid of alarm clocks, or when we go through a day on some type of schedule, either written or unwritten, and we try to go to bed by a certain time. Time controls us completely. And whether we like it or not, we have an obsession with time in some way, shape, or form. Now, as we know, we had the time change Sunday morning, okay, where we fall back. And all of us were very thankful for that extra hour of sleep. But by a strange coincidence, and I don't know if it's coincidence or not, I wake up, and we're up on the mountain, I have to go to the bathroom. Okay, that happens. And I look at my cell phone, I use it as an alarm clock, and it says 1.55 a.m. Well, I look at it briefly, thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is the first go-around or the second. I think I'm going to find out. So I, I go to the bathroom, come back, and I watch that clock until it reaches 1.59 and 59 seconds, and it rolled to 1 o'clock. So I got it the first time around, and believe it or not, I always wanted to do that. Sounds weird, sounds strange. I mean, as a teenager, back, remember we used to dial the time on the phone, 853-1212, and you say, at the time, the time will be, and so forth. And I always wanted to get up at the time change to listen to either it jump ahead or jump back, and and never got to do it. You know, I'd set the alarm for like 145, and then I'd just sleep right through it or something. But it shows a, a rather, you know, almost morbid interest in time. Now, what exactly is time? Well, there's a definition. Okay? Time is defined as a dimension in which events can be ordered from the past through the present into the future and also the measure of durations of events and the intervals between them. Sounds exciting. Well, this is a rather dull definition, but it is still a fascinating study because it does affect and define everything we do and what we are. Is Believe it or not, it is the most common quantity that we measure. Yeah, more than volume, more than length. You know, how often have we gone in our houses looking for a ruler or a meter stick or a tape measure to measure something, but if we need to know what the time is, we look at the microwave. Or we grab our cell phone. Oh, this is the exact time. Um, how many of us wear watches? It's not so common anymore, but a lot of us do. Okay. Sometimes more as a fashion statement as opposed to, you know, telling the time. But for me, it's a lot easier than pulling my cell phone out of my pocket. Okay? This really reflects this, you know, clocks all around us are, are how much time does control our actions. You know, be at work at 8 a.m., lunch at noon, appointment at 2.30, dinner at 5, Bible study at 7. Oh, no, yeah, reruns of the love boat come on at 9 on TV land. But before we blame modern society for this fixation with time, a look at history shows us it's, it's always been that way. Uh, if, 
you know, go back to the time when the sun was your timekeeper. Okay, not even a sundial. If you worked outdoors, you had those hours from sunrise to sunset to get your job done. Okay, if you were lucky and the moon happened to be full and it happened to be rather bright, you could maybe squeeze in another hour or two. But face it, artificial lighting outdoors was unheard of at that point in time. And even indoors, same thing. You basically were operated by the sun rising and the sun setting. And artificial lighting inside, at that point, it was expensive. And it's interesting to note that it's not just humans that are affected by time. Animals are controlled. You know, when it, the sun goes down, your diur- diurnal animals, the ones that are awake during the day, they go back to their nests or their den to go to sleep. And the nocturnal creatures, such as the skunks and the possums, they start their nightly prowling about into our trash cans. Flowers and open and close with the rising and setting of the sun. And the passage of the seasons are marked by changes in vegetation, maybe not so much here in Southern California, but in other parts of the world, and by animal migration patterns. Now as time moved on and and man gained knowledge, he recognized a need for more accurate timekeeping. Now did you know, here's another little trivia point, that time is the quantity that we can most accurately measure even more so than length. I mean, think about this for a second. How many of us, and there's a lot of people who work with rulers and so forth in here, actually measure something down to one one-hundredth of an inch? Okay, There are a few that maybe when they work with high-precision equipment or micro-circuits or something like that, they might do that. But for the most of our, well, my rulers, most of mine go down to one-eighth of an inch. I think I have one that goes down to one-sixteenth. And when it comes to tools... Well, if you don't have metric, you actually have some tools that are, you know, one, you know, basically to the nearest 32nd of an inch or even the nearest 64th, depending on what you're doing. However, take a look at your iPhone at some point, not now, okay? And look at the stopwatch. It measures down to one one hundredth of a second. Some even go down to one one thousandth of a second. Now, your reaction time is one tenth of a second on average. Now here's an interesting little another tidbit. The smallest time interval that can be measured with current technologies is 12 attoseconds. Now what's an attosecond? Well, there it is. If you don't want to count, there are 17 zeros in front of that one after the decimal point. This is a number that's so small, it's meaningless. Yet somebody can measure this small, and no, I don't know why, I know I don't but they can. So this focus on the accuracy of time goes a long way for explaining about how much time is actually embedded in our language. And I've been saying a few of those things from time to time. We're on time. We take our time. We fill up time. We kill time, sometimes somewhat ruthlessly. Time flies. Uh, I'll be with you in a minute. Well, I've got the time. Uh, Time is on my side, if you're Mick Jagger, but really I don't think he's got it right now. I've got a 5 o'clock shadow. Okay, You're behind the times. I'm told that all the time. The list can go on. Yet for all this, time marches on. One second at a time. And there is nothing we can do about that. We are traveling forward in time at the same steady pace. Well, we try to fool ourselves into thinking that 
we have some effect on the time, um, like time flies when you're having fun. Okay, you say that. Um, sometimes you think if time doesn't slow down, if you don't think that time doesn't slow down, try spending all of your uh, monthly paycheck within the first week of the month. Then suddenly time crawls very slowly. You tell your wife, just a minute. And then when she comes back a half hour later, you basically tell her, oh, those are football minutes. We can't turn back the clock. We can't beat the clock. And though a broken clock is correct twice a day, time continues to flow. Now my grandmother once wrote a very small poem. And here it is. God dipped his finger in the pool of eternity and in the gap placed a little thing called time. Now I like this couplet because it tells us that despite what the world may think, time is a gift from God. The Lord gives us, and are you ready for this? 86,400 seconds per day. One second at a time. And it's for us to spend as we will. And because he gave us time as a gift, clearly God thought it was extremely important. And biblically, we can support this. God took time to create the universe. Okay, He could have just as easily called the entire creation into existence instantly. Miracle. But like the master craftsman that he is, he took time, stage by stage, as all neatly described in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, God let a period of time pass after he created Adam before he created Eve. He kind of talked about this already. Now, he just as easily could have created them both simultaneously. But he had a plan. He wanted something special for Adam, and time had to pass before Adam could realize just how special Eve was going to be. Now, on the downside, when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have just taken them both out at that point and started completely over. But he bided his time. And he sent Jesus at just the right moment to complete his plan of salvation several thousand years later. Now, this is why we have to change our viewpoint of what time really is. God has a plan, and even though he is outside of time, he created it. He models for us wise time management. And this is because we can become a part of his divine plan. So we can look and see how God handles time when time really doesn't mean anything to him or means something differently. And we can do the same thing. Throughout Scripture, we see how the Lord uses time in two basic ways. One, to extend his mercy to a fallen world. And two, to mold his servants into what he wants them to be. And it is the second divine use of time that we are going to look at tonight. Because as spiritual leaders, it affects us directly in many ways. And we are going to look for our example tonight at the Apostle Paul. If you have a Bible, please open it up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is a very familiar passage to most of us because it looks at Paul's conversion. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this through our story. But we have looked at it on many occasions, and it's an amazing example of how conversion happens instantly. Okay, a lot of times conversion is a slow process. Not so with Paul. And there's a lot of lessons we're going to learn about handling our time merely by looking at this example. We are starting in verse 1. So Paul, or, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. 
Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So in a single moment, on the road to Damascus, God changed Saul, the Pharisee, into Saul, the Christian. Now notice verse 6. Saul did not hesitate, nor did he come back and say, Oh, you know, Lord, uh, let me think about that for a day or two and get back to you. Okay, Or he didn't say, Well, wait a minute, what are my friends in the Sanhedrin going to think? What did he say? Lord, what do you want me to do? There was no time wasted here. Now we get a glimpse of a man of action, and we're going to see more of that throughout the book of Acts. Now that he knew the truth, he wanted to move forward in this new direction. And the Lord rewarded his faith and answered his question. No, not in full. The time wasn't right. So continuing on with verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So now we come to Ananias. He also gets a message from God. But though he places himself immediately as God's service, he's not as keen to obey instantly as Saul was, and for very good reasons. Uh, he had apparently knew that about Saul the Pharisee by reputation. Some people from Jerusalem may have already come up warning that this fellow was on his way. But we'll hand this to him because or instead of balking or making excuses or trying to pass the call off to somebody else, Ananias tells the Lord what was on his heart. Hey, I'm worried. This guy is out to kill us or out to bring us back so we can be killed. But once he told the Lord, God made it clear that what he had in mind for Saul. You don't have to worry, Ananias. I got it handled. And with that reassurance, there was no more hesitation on Ananias' part. Verse 17. 
And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there was there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days, or spent some days, with the disciples at Damascus. Now note what happens in verse eighteen. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Right off the bat, Saul wasted no time in preaching the gospel. And there were a lot of confused people in the process. However, at some point, according to Galatians 1, Paul went to Arabia for a time. Why? Well, the scripture is not clear on this point, but I think we can safely say that this was, this was, it was not time yet for Saul to go into action. As eager as he was, God says, you've got to learn a bit more. God wanted to have some extra time to mold Saul, the Christian, into Paul the Apostle. And despite his thorough knowledge of the Old Testament, God, in some way, was instructing Saul in the ways of Christ. He had the Holy Spirit on him, so it really isn't that hard to figure out how. So when he returned to Damascus, he was not the same as he was before. Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is causing quite a stir and ruffled a lot of feathers in the wrong places. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. So, Paul's zeal for Christ was causing quite a stir. But that didn't stop him. Off he goes to Jerusalem, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now these Hellenists may have been the same ones who had had some issues with Stephen, which led to his martyrdom. And if you remember, this was an event that Saul had witnessed and approved of. Now he had switched sides. And despite his previous reputation and being learned in the Old Testament scriptures, this new testimony could not be tolerated by the Jewish authorities. And once again, Saul is off, this time to his hometown of Tarsus. Now again, the word is silent as to what he did there for several years. And this is the last we really hear of Paul until chapter 11 when Barnabas goes to Tarsus to bring him back to Antioch. But the time was well spent in some way because in Acts 13, we now see Saul the Christian He has now become Paul the Apostle. And his ministry for the Lord begins in earnest as God unleashes him on an unsuspecting world. 
Acts 13, 1-4 Now in the church that was at Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. God was ready, and he knew now Paul was ready. And Paul obeyed. But you can tell that up to that point, he was really champing at the bit. He was ready to go on full steam. But he waited. He took his time. So the lessons for us here are obvious. First off, we cannot waste time when the Lord is giving us a calling on our lives. Now as spiritual leaders, when we are in tune with the Holy Spirit, we know what the Lord wants us to do and should act accordingly. However, too often we hesitate, wondering, well, was that really from God? Or was it just me? Okay, And especially in situations where we're being told to step out of our comfort zones on faith. Okay, A lot of times it's like we're Ananias. Uh, wait a minute, there's a problem. Okay, And God's saying, no, there's no problem. I know what I'm doing. Now, in such situations, we should be as Ananias, voicing our concerns to the Lord. He's not going to smite us because we have some doubts. He wants to hear it because he wants to clarify the issue. But once the message from God is clear, we are to obey his voice, knowing that he has us in his hands. Now, secondly, we should be patient when the Lord has work to do in our lives. Over and over again in Scripture, we see examples of great men of faith going through the long road of preparation before being allowed to do the work that God had called them to do. We see Paul. Another good example would be Joseph in the book of Genesis. He had received dreams that his brothers would bow before him. But at the time he had these dreams, he was essentially kind of a well, somewhat spoiled teenager that didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. God couldn't use that just yet. But God did fulfill those dreams. But only after Joseph had been prepared through all sorts of unpleasant experiences and was finally ready for the task appointed to him. Likewise, Paul had to wait for God to mold him into the man he was supposed to be, but it was well worth the wait, and Paul acknowledged that. If we look at 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through Paul's looking back on his life, and there are no regrets. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And may we all look back on our own lives with the same feeling of accomplishment in our service to God. Thirdly, and most importantly, we should pray, especially when the Lord gives us incomplete instructions. No, God is not some incompetent manager expecting us to read his mind. He has a plan, and we must be ready to follow his plan, but we must also realize that he is going to know when we are ready, much better than we actually know it ourselves. And the only way we can do this is through prayer. Now, looking back at Acts 9, verse 6, we talked about this before. Let's look at it again. Lord, what did you want me to do? 
This is Saul talking. The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. How is he going to find out those further instructions? Through prayer. Three days worth. Prayer and fasting. And to make sure that Paul or Saul was not going to be distracted, he was blinded for those three days. His spiritual eyes were now open, though his physical eyes were now closed. And this was done for a reason. Paul, or God, wanted Saul's complete attention. So for three days, Saul fasted and prayed, indicating a deep, anguished prayer, probably involving more than a little soul-searching on Saul's part. Now, he was not in a dream-like state, like sometimes people pray, meditating, hoping for a word from God before I fell asleep. Okay, or was he, Nor was he rattling off the repetitive prayers he knew so well from his Pharisee background. Very likely, this was a two-way conversation with God, helping him to sort out what he now believed and how on earth, being taught all his life that the law was the way of salvation, how grace through Jesus Christ could do the same thing. And certainly God began to instruct Saul and show him the relationship between the gospel of grace of God and the Mosaic traditions that he had excelled in all his life. Now, this is the type of prayer life we need to strive for. Now, those who read through chapter 11, the book made it, basically made it a great point. And I'm going to quote it here. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath and native air. But in a strange paradox, most of us find it hard to pray. We pay lip service to the delight and power of prayer, but we fail to pray. Now, you may think, well, no, our spiritual leaders, our pastors, and all these other guys, they certainly don't fall in that category. Well, I know I do. And I think if we're honest with each other, we all do. In fact, a recent article on pastoral leadership notes that many Christian leaders are guilty of doing nearly everything else in ministry but praying. One survey notes that 80% of pastors surveyed spent less than 15 minutes or less per day in prayer, the total averaging 7 minutes per day. The most generous survey said that pastors pray all of 37 minutes per day, but in that very same survey, only 16% of Protestant ministers across the country stated that they were, quote, very satisfied with their personal prayer life. All the rest were not. Now, we realize that surveys can have a sizable margin of error, but every single survey points out something that is rather disturbing. Spiritual leaders, from pastors on down, pray too little. No wonder so many spiritual leaders are discouraged, get burned out, and are ready to quit if they have not done so already. Now, I'll let you know right now, I am not pointing fingers at any of our pastors. Okay, I know for a fact, for example, Pastor Richard is a man on his knees for our church and God's will in this ministry. You can be assured, I've seen it, I've prayed with him. This is not an issue. However, all of us, all of us can pray more. And yeah, I include myself in this category. A point of shame in almost every Christian's walk is in their prayer life. Now, we know this. We've heard it repeatedly. Um, a quote from R.A. Torrey, who was a fellow servant of Dwight Moody. Prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that prayer is and all that God does is at the disposal of prayer. 
But we must use that key. Prayer can do anything God can do, and as God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. John Piper observed that prayer is the splicing of our limp wire into the lightning bolt of heaven. God loves to bless his people, but even more, he loves to do it in answer of prayer. So if we know these things, why do we not pray like we should? Well, i got a simple answer. We're human. We allow ourselves to be distracted. We listen to the lies of the enemy that we can always pray tomorrow, that we're too sleepy, that we aren't in the mood after a hard day at work, or that the football game we've been looking forward to all year is on tonight, and oh my, it's in overtime. List is long. Prayer is not something that comes naturally to you, to us, and therefore in our own power, it will always be a struggle. And if we aren't careful, we just won't fight that battle, even though God does nothing in ministry apart from prayer. We look back at Acts 13, before Paul and Barnabas were sent out, what was going on? Prayer. Okay? Before you know, Saul himself was healed, what was he doing? prayer how can we splice into heaven's lightning bolt then if this is the case and we see it all through the new testament what can we do well we need to first off realize that no matter how busy we are in our lives and we are all busy we cannot be too busy to pray all too often we put prayer on the bottom of our list of things to do if we have time then we pray if not well then god knows our heart Look at it this way, guys. If someone risked his life to save us from a fiery death, say a car crash, we would be internally grateful, right? And if that man lost his life in the process, we would be doing all we could for his family in an attempt to repay that debt, wouldn't we? Well, the thing is, that's what exactly happened. Jesus died on the cross so we could be saved from a fiery eternity separated from God. Eternal torment. And yet, oftentimes, we will not even speak to our rescuer, well, except if we need something. We have time to pray. Praying is just as important to the spiritual leader as eating or sleeping or breathing. We just need to take a look at what we do with our time. Now remember, God gave us 86,400 seconds per day. How do we spend it? Well, prayer should be our number one priority. Instead of taking the full lunch hour, for example, devote the first part to prayer. Now, if it's something really important and you go past that first part and you don't eat lunch, well, that's prayer and fasting. But the God's gonna, but the Lord's gonna, gonna welcome that. Okay, He's gonna bless that. Instead of staying up at you know at night to watch reruns of Gilligan's Island, go to bed early, and then get up early for prayer. Okay. Just shift your sleeping pattern slightly. Oftentimes the Lord will wake us up in the middle of the night. And instead of trying to count sheep, pray. You're wide awake, pray. Don't toss and turn and wondering what's going on. Something is requiring your prayerful attention. And a lot of times the Lord will have something on your heart that you weren't even thinking about before. And that attention becomes much more clear. And then when your prayer is done and suddenly... You're relaxed. Lord's saying, thanks, go back to sleep. We find that God 
will allow us to go through our busy day without a problem if we devote it, part of it to prayer. Charles Spurgeon said on the topic of prayer, Sometimes we think we are too busy to pray. That also is a great mistake, for praying is a saving of time. God can multiply our ability to make use of time. If we give the Lord his due, we shall have enough for all necessary purposes. In this matter, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Your other engagements will run smoothly if you do not forget your engagement with God. So how do we improve our prayer life? Well, some helpful suggestions. First off, set a time to pray. Choose a time when you are not likely to be disturbed or distracted. For some, and myself that's included, the best time is early in the day. Just to give a a nice little example, the sanctuary is open from 6 to 7 a.m. every Thursday morning for prayer, specifically for those who are on their way to work and need to spend that time uninterrupted with the Lord. There's no talking, the lights are low, and the heat is on, so each can have that special prayer time and fellowship with the Lord. For others, it's in the evening, after the kids have gone to bed. But however you do it, set aside that precious time and keep the appointment. God wants to spend that time with you. Now, granted, it's true that God's kingdom will advance without your prayers. He's not dependent upon you. But your blessing and ministry will not prosper without those same prayers because you are dependent upon Him. Next, set set an amount of time to pray. Well, many people set aside an hour. Where this comes from is Jesus' admonition of His disciples in the guard before His arrest. If we look at Matthew 26.40, a lot of people use this as a guide. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? And so a lot of people say, Ah, one hour. That's what I'm going to do. One hour a day. And by the way, this is by no means a set rule. And of course, there are times when one may feel compelled to pray longer. Now this may vary with other commitments and work schedules, but God will reward you for your faithfulness. And of course, this is not the only time during the day that you pray. Pray without ceasing, Paul told the Corinthians. So this does not mean that you are praying and to the exclusion of all else. You know, don't I'm driving, don't bother me, I'm praying. You know, keep your eyes open behind the wheel. Thank you. Okay. But what happens is your that prayer becomes your priority, downtime becomes prayer time. Okay? And that's a good habit to get into. But uh, an hour? I don't know what to pray about. I mean, I remember starting, setting aside an hour and got in about seven minutes and that was it. Well, that's where the Holy Spirit can help. Our own prayer list may be somewhat short and maybe you're not into flowerly long prayers liberally laced with King James English and lots of these and thous. And to be terribly honest, you don't have to. God hears you even when you don't say a word. And if you read... Matthew 6, you will find God's not into those loud, long, flowery prayers either. Okay, He's more interested in what's going on in your heart. The Spirit will put things on your heart that maybe you weren't thinking about, that maybe haven't occurred to you yet. Um, as time goes on, your prayers grow longer. Okay, You start feeling more of a burden and you want to repeat yourself, and it's not repeating to God. You, All of us have unsaved 
friends and loved ones. And I know it takes more than seven minutes to go through the list, at least it does for me. Okay? Especially when you're talking about families involved. But also keep in mind that this quiet time is in there as well. Time to listen to God, to listen to the Spirit. Because this is prayer. It is a two-way conversation. And like anybody, God doesn't want to exactly hear us and not get a word in edgewise. And sometimes, if you're lucky, you'll hear that still small voice. But most of the time, it's through His Word, through the Bible. So you keep a Bible handy during those times when passages pop to mind that are words of encouragement, guidance, approbation, and yeah, correction. It's all fair game. Okay? Prayer is a conversation. Keep that in mind. And the Word, God's Word, the Bible, is God's answers to us in many ways. Thirdly, determine a place to pray. Now, Jesus was a great example. He prayed a lot. He was never, apparently, according to Scripture, you never got the impression that he was rushed, rushed, rushed. Well, we got to get to Nazareth. Now we got to get to Capernaum. Now we got to do this and da-da-da. You never got that impression. He went along according to God's plan, and he prayed a lot. And in fact, sometimes that's all he was able to do was pray because that was so important to him. And when he met up with people, he treated their problem like it was the most important thing to him. And at that moment, it was. So you never got this feeling of, oh, Jesus, I know you're busy, so I'm not going to talk to you right now. Okay? I know some people come to me and say that. Oh, I know you're terribly busy. And to be honest, guys, I'm not too busy to listen. Okay? I, that, and I think I, I speak for all the pastors on this one. We are never too busy for you. Because you're our priority. And we need to reflect that in our prayers as well. You go to a place without distraction. Jesus' life going to the wilderness. And I can understand why. I love the desert. Yes, I'm crazy. I know that. I teach junior high. What do you expect? Okay. But the desert is such a wonderful place because there are no distractions. You're out there and you feel close to the Lord. And I can understand perfectly why Jesus used that as a venue for most of his praying. To just get that connection back with his heavenly Father. Now, going to the desert may not be a practical daily activity for any of us. Okay? But we can create our own little prayer of a sanctuary. You hear, I've heard people in the past talk about prayer closets or prayer rooms. Okay? It doesn't have to be a special place. But you have to find that place without distractions. Turn off the TV, the radio, the cell phone, the computer. It's just you and the Lord. Have the word. Have a light on Generally, that time of prayer will determine your place of prayer. But remember, it's just between you and God. He wants your full attention, just like He gives you His full attention. Lastly, pray in the Spirit. Keep in mind that prayer is not bending God's will to ours, but aligning our will to God's. As I said before, the Spirit will lead you in your prayers. Many of us will keep prayer journals. But be willing to let the Spirit take you off the agenda and into an area He wants you to focus on. As you allow the Spirit to move through your prayers, you may find yourself physically moved. As your body begins to feel the spiritual struggle that you are now engaged in against the forces of darkness. Satan does not want you to pray. Because he knows that prayer is an effective force against him and his demons. How often have we been in the middle of prayer and suddenly discouraging, even 
impure, obscene thoughts just pop into our head, seemingly at random. They're not at random, guys. These are darts of the enemy trying to distract us and get us off from our communion of, from God. And we need to rebuke these thoughts in the name of Jesus and cling closer to the Spirit as we continue with our prayers. We may find ourselves weeping, crying out to God, even perhaps speaking in an unknown tongue. And it may sound rather frightening here, but when you are in such a position, you will feel that comfort of the Lord on you as well as the anguish He feels over the lost. We've heard this before, but I'm going to quote David Wilkerson. You see, a true prayer life begins in the place of anguish. You see, if you set your heart to pray, God is going to come and start sharing his heart with you. And at that point, your heart begins to cry out, Oh God, your name is being blasphemed. The Holy Spirit is being mocked. The enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness. And something has to be done. At that point, we know we are in tune with the Lord. There's a worship song that we sing from time to time, and it says this. Heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth to eternity. And no, I wasn't going to sing it. So now we come back to time. Once our prayer life is in order, you will see God will give you the time you need to accomplish everything you need to do. Then note what I said, you need to do. But keep in mind, there are other priorities, especially if you are a family man. And I felt very burdened to move into this little side note of timing. If you're a family man, your family is your first ministry, and that should never be neglected. I have seen marriages and families split apart, not by adultery, not by cheating, not by anything like that, but because the spiritual leader of the household devoted all his time to ministry, but devoted no time to his family. I'll share a little story here. As most of you know, I have a two-year-old daughter, and she happened to be born on a Wednesday morning. And I would not have missed that event for the world. Emma was a gift from God after many years. And I was not going to miss a moment of those first few days when I had time off from my job. Because it was love at first sight. Now that was a Wednesday. And for those who may remember, I was not here that Wednesday. And some people say, whoa, that's unusual. Not really. When family gets involved, I'm not here. But it was kind of a special Wednesday because we knew when Pastor Richard announced to the congregation that Emma was born, at about 7.45 p.m., our cell phones started vibrating on and on with people texting congratulations or Facebook messages. (sighs) Texting in service, naughty, naughty. That was where I was. I belong, though, with my family. And there are those, strange as it may sound, that would disagree with me. Oh, we got service tonight. Okay, honey, uh, uh, Emma, I'll be back. I gotta, I'll be back. I gotta go and serve. I have to do this and do that. 
well, that's commendable in a sense, but you're neglecting your first ministry. And if you disagree with me, that's your right. But I do know God blesses us when we bless our family as our first ministry because they are a gift, our spouses and our children. And I even think I have a little biblical basis for this. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. through 5. This is a listing in requirements for a bishop or overseer or a pastor, any spiritual leader, to be honest. And according to this verse, that the man should be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, how can you be ruling your own house when you're not even sure what's going on inside of it because you have neglected that part of your ministry? That's my question. This, now, this may not be much of a problem if you have no kids and your wife is heart and soul with you in ministry, but, if, but your kids and your wife do need the attention, and they will resent it if you constantly trump their needs in the name of ministry. Remember, they are your ministry. But if you are truly in tune with the Lord, He will reveal these issues to you, and He will chastise you if you don't listen, even as far as taking you out of ministry for a season in order to teach you a lesson before it's too late. None of us are irreplaceable. God may want to use you, but if He will put you on the shelf until you get your priorities straight, and during that time of inaction, think back to Saul as he waited to hear of God's plan for him. He fasted and prayed. God controls time. Those 86,400 seconds a day come directly from Him. He has a plan, and that plan includes an appointed time for everything. Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, notes in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to plant, pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Even though we are given 86,400 seconds per day, Scripture will tell us that it is appointed for a man to die once, that one day we will have spent the last of those seconds with no more to follow. We must live our lives with the thought that those precious seconds are more valuable than gold, that we must not waste a single one. We must be like Moses who prayed in Psalm 90, 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Time. God's gift to us. We can now see a much more spiritual definition of time, courtesy of Bible scholar Carl Henry. He speaks of time as the divinely created sphere of God's preserving and redemptive work and the arena of man's decision on his way to an eternal destiny. This is not a time to be wasted. Now tonight, 
I'm not going to ask questions or anything like that because I think the topic is really, really very personal to all of us. But I ask us to bow our heads right now. And I want you to go through your own prayer life. And I want you to think, Father, I need to pray more. And if you're a man who wants to pray more, who knows you must pray more, who's been lacking, I want you to come up here and join me right down here because, yeah, I'm one of those. I know I lack in this. Because we're going to all pray together as men, as spiritual leaders of our church, that we come forward and say, Lord, we have been hiding from you long enough. Adam was hiding from you when he sinned. We are redeemed. We should no longer be hiding. And put your arms around the man next to you. And join me in this prayer. Father, we, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. The thank you of this precious privilege, precious honor you gave to us to come boldly before you. Before your throne at any time, for any reason. To call you Father. But Father... We lack. We don't see you enough. We don't talk to you enough. We don't come to you to listen to you enough. And Father, we ask you now to bring your spirit now upon us. And as men of, of, of your will, men of your kingdom, we pray, Father, that you strengthen us and give us that desire to pray more, to connect more with that powerhouse that you have for us that is waiting for us to tap into. Because we can do all things in your Son, in Christ, that strengthens us. But unless we ask in prayer, it's never going to happen. So, Father, put your hand upon us. Give us the self-control to find that time to cast away those things that are, dis- that are distracting us, that are taking us away from that wonderful relationship that you had in mind from the very beginning. And all of us, Father, pray that as we can pray more, as we get closer to you, that our service to you become that much more powerful, that much more glorious for your glory, for your kingdom, not for us. We praise you, Father. We thank you for the salvation of your Son. And now, Father, we thank you that we can now come boldly before you and will continue to come boldly before you. And we will see a, a... revival in our church as we now tap into your power and your glory. We praise you. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.